that McGowan. All right, so Paige asked me on the way over here if I was ready. I was like, no, I'm not. This is one of those subjects that I, I don't, unless you understand both sides of it, at least to some degree, uh, I don't ever feel like I'm ready. This is a subject that I've studied for a number of years, and so, and I'm not comfortable where I'm at, uh, and I've never read anybody that satisfied me with where they were at. So this is a difficult thing. And really, it's because of our nature. Uh, we always get things in the ditch. I tell you all that all the time. And this is one of the things when you start talking about the law of God and the liberty that we have in Christ or law and grace, we invariably get things in the ditch one side or the other. I guess at least I'll go back two generations. Um, they had legalism in the ditch in a terrible sort of way. Uh, I read you guys that, for instance, where the guy got caught drinking for the second time and they removed him from church fellowship and all those sort of things. Uh, I wasn't there, so I won't say a whole lot about that. But I also know that you used to have a very long stick in the back of the church. If you fell asleep, they'd reach up there and they'd pop you on the top of the head or the back or something like that. And uh, Women were expected to dress a particular way, and if you didn't, you were uh, a hoodlum and uh, just a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff. But we've gotten it in the ditch on the other side of the things now, and it's like holiness is a non-issue whatsoever. Uh, we've opened the door to everything and everybody, and we're trying to be all-inclusive and accept everybody, and that's not the church either. Uh, so we have to be very careful and cautious as we try to understand what Scripture says about the law of God in the life of the believer and how we use the law now, there's a gnat flying around my head, how we use the law now uh, in relationship to the grace that we've experienced in Christ. And this is kind of like sovereignty and human responsibility almost. You know, those, I think it was Spurgeon that compared those to train tracks. Was, was it Spurgeon? He said they never cross. They're both there, the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. And they cross in the mind of God for you to plug those two things together. But in our minds, it just escapes us of how we plug those two thoughts in together. Law and liberty is approaching that. I won't suggest that it's that bad. Uh, but nonetheless, it is a difficult issue that we have to be very careful with. So grace must be guarded from legalism in the gospel. We certainly don't want to be legalists. That's leaning toward a heresy very quickly. And then law must be guarded from antinomianism, and that's just a fancy word for anti-law. You're against the law of God. And if you meet an antinomian, they profess faith in Christ very clearly, but their life is exactly like that of lost people because they say they're free in Christ and there is no law to keep. Therefore, they are godless in every way, shape, and form. Uh, no holds barred. And so those are the two errors. We've got to guard grace, but at the same time, we've got to be careful with the law and understand. For instance, you take the first commandment. Do you really believe that you can worship uh, a, an idol or a foreign god and profess faith in Christ at the same time? I don't think anybody in their right mind would tell you that that's okay, but you have to see that that's a part of the law too, that we don't have any idols in our life. And so we can see how, okay, this is, this is going to be a little touch and go, and we've got to keep all these things in mind as we walk through these passages. So we'll try to do that. 
this is the most used passage to remove the law completely off the table uh, in Romans 10.4. But I, I do want to work through this, and I hope my pen works. It just There it was. Uh, some of you who normally answer questions, wait till the very end because I want some of you guys that don't ever answer questions. And I know there's not many here, but uh, to see how we're making progress with some of the thoughts of these. You can see pretty quickly, for, the Christ, for Christ is the end of the law, right? And so you could see how somebody that was anti-law would take this and run with it because they say, and this is their key passage, they say, see it says it right there, the law has been ended. It's actually, that word, I think, means completed. It's finished. It's taken away. But what's wrong with that if you keep reading the passage? Because it's modified. Actually, there's two modifiers on that. It's only the end of the law for who? Well, you're jumping way ahead of me. <laughs> Believers. First of all, it's only off the table to some degree for believers, and it's only off because of one particular reason. What's the other modifier? For the purpose of saving righteousness. See that right there? So Christ did the end of the law for righteousness. That doesn't mean that it's entirely removed. That just means that in a justifying sense, saving faith, it's been removed. And this is what we've been talking about in Romans Romans 8, right? Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf. And so from the aspect of me trying to achieve righteousness in the mind of God or in the sight of God, that's a fool's errand right there. We can never be good enough. And so the law doesn't give us any sort of avenue in which we can be justified in the sight of God. Yet, if you talk to anybody and you ask them, are you going to heaven? They'll all say yes. And if you say, why do you think that? They're going to say, because what? I am a good person. Now, they don't equate that necessarily with technically the law of God, but they're using the same avenue or effort to obtain something from God. Because I am a good person, God's going to accept me. I don't, I'm not a bad person. So that's kind of an effort toward the law, if you will, but... Again, a legalist, that's me, again, a legalist uses the law to justify themselves before God. I've even had a lady I talked to one time when we were out in the Northwest. Her statement was, I put faith in Christ and I keep the Ten Commandments. That was her thought. Therefore, she knew she was going to heaven. And I was just like, you know, there's some understanding to work with but there's also something terribly wrong, right? There is no Christ and anything, right? So we've got to be careful. Christ is into the law for one aspect, for you and I being justified in the sight of God. It's not going to happen in regard to the law. Everybody understand that? That's critical. You have to understand that. All right, so let me get out of this and go. So we've got all these statements that... So we know Romans 10 says that, but at the same time, you've got to realize the words of Jesus where he says in, in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I came to abolish the law. So Christ is the end of the law, 
But at the same time, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. So you can see why you've got to take all these passages, you've got to put them all up on a board, and our theology has to say yes to every single passage that deals with the law. And it becomes really difficult. Because Christ is the end of the law, yet Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. So we've got to be able to bring those two thoughts together. And that's, that, that can get pretty tough. He said, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Okay? So the law is not going anywhere until it's accomplished. You say, well, what accomplishes it? Was it what Jesus did on Calvary? Perhaps so. Is it going to be in the new heavens and the new earth? Perhaps so. But you've got to understand it, it's not going anywhere. He did not come to abolish it. He simply came to fulfill it. And what all that includes, you've got to consider. Now, verse 19 is even more difficult for me. I've sat there for quite some time today mulling this over in my head. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So we have some sort of aspect of the law to where that's going on. And you're like, okay, now I'm lost. <laughs> now I'm lost. So we've got to understand keeping and teaching from a particular point of view that doesn't violate grace in the gospel. Okay, what is that? I wish I could explain that in greater clarity for you, but that's a difficult thought for me. Whoever keeps and teaches, right? He should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So you can see Jesus exalted the law, and of course he did. It came from God. And everything that comes from a holy God is what? Holy. Everything that comes from a good God is what? Good. And so... You know, I don't know how you grew up, but I, were, I was exposed to pockets here and there of teachings, usually involved around youth ministry, that was very critical with the law. It had been removed, it had been set aside, no longer played a role. Man, if the law plays any kind of role, it plays a role in the life of youth because they are sinners who don't have a relationship with God, who break the law all the time, and it's the law that brings conviction for their sin. So I could definitely see the need for preaching the law often to show them their need for Christ. But nonetheless, a lot of people have completely removed the Old Testament. You don't want to do that either. Jesus goes on to say, and this might help us understand this. So this is a continuation of the thought. Whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And he flows right into this, if it will turn. Go ahead and turn to Matthew 5 just in case all this crashes and we won't have to rely on it. Notice verse 20. You'll see we just read verse 19. Then he says in verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not go to heaven. Now, I realize you probably know what that means, but he explains it in the next few passages. You've heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. Whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you're good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So what sort of righteousness do we need that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees? That's the question I want you to be able to answer, even quickly. What righteousness surpasses that of the most faithful religious leader of the time who dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's? Imputed, which you're off in the right, right direction. I want you to go an inward righteousness, a righteousness from the heart because their righteousness was external. We've talked about this before. Don't commit adultery. Well, I've never done that. Okay, well, let me ask you another question. You ever looked at a woman, Leslie, from, you know, with your eyes? If you've done that, you're guilty. That's where Jesus was taking the law. He said, you guys are just, you're so concerned with appearance, but you need to know I'm concerned with the heart because if you get the heart right, the appearances will be right. If the heart has been changed, the outside will be changed. So let's just stop worrying about the outside. Let's be concerned with what's going on in the inside. Okay? So Jesus was trying to tell me, unless your righteousness surpasses that, because they've got externalism and legalism nailed. In fact, everyone was impressed. And I'm telling you, you guys would have been very impressed too. Every time I've been around a Buddhist, they're impressive. I mean, if they're devout, they are impressive. I did not walk on a bus or get on any kind of motorized vehicle. If there was one sitting down, they immediately popped up and did this to their seat to me. Immediately. If they saw you needed something and they had it, they gave it to you. And they're not walking around with any sort of crazy possessions or anything impressive. They're very, mo very modest. I mean, they kind of exaggerate that a little bit too much. But I mean, language, never, never. Kind, always. Serving, you bet. So we would be very impressed, but God's like, yeah, but you've got to have a righteousness that, that's more than impressive outwardly. You've got to have one from your heart, right? And so that may help you understand 519, whoever keeps and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Because there is a way handling the law that is very faithful. Okay. Hopefully we touch on that or we, we do that around here. Uh, there's some things in First Timothy that we've got to deal with too. In fact, y'all do realize there's literally dozens and dozens and dozens of passages that I've left out. Because I just wanted to touch on this. This is a difficult subject. Paul writes in First Timothy... The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Now you can immediately see that Paul says, My teaching is motivated to strike at what? The inner man. That's what I'm shooting at. Okay? I'm not trying to get you to obey a, obey a set of rules. I'm not trying to get you to pay to attention to external things. I'm trying to deal with matters of the inner man, okay? 
He said, Some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be, notice, teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they're saying or their matters about which they make such confident assertions. This is New Testament smack talk right here. This is a little bit of salt from the Apostle Paul toward these teachers. But it also helps us realize that there's always going to be those that mishandle or unfaithful with teaching the law of God. There's always going to be those influences within the church. Okay? Um, but from their perspective, the error was in legalism. And here's what's going to happen, I think. It's usually what does happen. We're in a time of antinomianism. There's, as far as America is concerned, there's never been a more heightened time of antinomianism. There's everything. I mean, the church and the world, no different. I don't even say practically, I just say no different. Okay? What will happen if there is a correction before the return of Christ, we will overcorrect and we'll get it all the way back across the other road into the other ditch, and the church will become legalist. That will be the response. Because we will overcorrect all the godlessness going on, and the churches who are trying to be faithful will begin to establish rules and laws and live by those things to try to denote the difference between the world, and we'll wind up being legalist again. This is all we ever do. It's just across the road, across the road, across the road. And the faithful church stays with the gospel, keeps it in the middle of the road, okay? And it's very difficult to do. But there's always those who want to be teachers of the law. Paul says they don't understand anything. Even the things they feel so confident about, Paul's like, they don't, they don't get it, okay? He goes on. But we know that the law is what? Good. If one uses it lawfully. In other words, let me back out of this and see what word that I wrote down. Uh, this word literally means, according to BDAG, in accordance with normal procedures, the word lawfully. So in other words, we know that the law is good if one uses it in accordance with normal procedures. Okay? So there is a particular way in which we have to use the law and be careful with the law. And he goes on realizing the fact that the law is not made for righteous people. Now, we're all Christians, which means we're all righteous because not our own righteousness, because we trust in the righteousness of Christ. Now, did I just remove the law from any effect whatsoever in your life? Is that what that, that says? No, why? Do what? Absolutely. That's definitely one aspect. What were you going to say? The righteousness that I have is not of my own. I'm left to my own. I'm the lawless, rebellious, ungodly yep. category. Yep. Sarah, what were you going to say? I was just thinking, well, if you're truly, fully righteous, then you're Okay. <laughs> All right. So... The context in which he's, he's using the law from one aspect. What aspect is he using the law here? He's only talking about one aspect of the law. Which one is it, Nathan? 
the law to convict people of sin? No, no one understanding of the law. The primary understanding of the law, not just one. The law in relationship to justification. So you got to figure out what are we talking about here, Paul? Because when you say the law is not made for righteous people, that sounds like, well, close my book. I don't care about the Ten Commandments. If I have an idol in my house, whoopee. It doesn't apply to me anymore. I believed in Christ, right? And we go, oh, wait, that's a little bit too far, bro. So we understand that when he's saying the law is not made for righteous people, he's talking about in respect to, again, justifying ourselves before God. It does nothing for me in regard to justification. Nothing for me. It does nothing for me. The fact that I don't worship idols does nothing for me. I fully trust in the righteousness of Christ for justification. Okay? Now it goes on. But the law used lawfully in accordance with normal procedures is for those who are, notice the list, notice the couplings, lawless and rebellious, ungodly and sinners, unholy, profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, murderers, immoral men and homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, the law is still in effect. Because those people who are actively living in that way, they're not justified. They don't have the indwelling Christ. They haven't turned from their sins. They're not pursuing a life of righteousness. They've committed their ways to defining them in this way. The law fully applies to them because the first purpose of the law is to what? Reveal sin. And so you better believe the law still applies. They'll be judged by the law. Okay? So when we understand that Jesus was the end of the law for righteousness, that only applies to a particular group of people, believers. Other than that, it's still on the table, and it's frightening. Because of the judgment for breaking the law. Now the last part is another part of the phrase that I've tried to work through today is difficult. And whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel. You want to wrestle with that one? Anybody? So he, he, I mean, he talks about the law and the gospel without even a pause or a comma or a break or nothing. He says the law is made for these people according to the glorious gospel. Now, granted, that's difficult, but I do want you to think a minute. How can he set those two thoughts side by side? And that's the end of the thought, by the way. I was making sure Paul changes direction after this, so this is all you get. <laughs> okay, so according to the glorious gospel, does that modify sound teaching, or is that, but for who the law, but for those who the law is for? No, it, it, it modifies that whole phrase. Okay. 
Yeah, sound teaching goes with the law applying to the immorality of men. So, the law illuminates sin. Yep. And illuminates your desperate need yep. for God. The gospel and this group of people's rejection of Christ also illuminates their depravity, illuminates their sin. There you go. You can't preach the gospel without preaching sin. You can't preach the gospel without preaching depravity. You can't pre preach the gospel without preaching judgment. And that's kind of what Paul's doing here in 1 Timothy. You can't talk about the gospel like so many people do today without talking about judgment. You can't talk up to an immoral man, where whatever he is, be a homosexual, whatever. You can't talk to them about the love of God until they fully understand that they're under the wrath of God. And that flies in the face of everything that's going on today, right? But likewise, you can't talk to anyone who is lawless and rebellious and ungodly and any other kind of sinner, a kidnapper, a liar, a perjurer. You can't talk to anybody about the love of God until they fully understand that they're under the judgment of God. And I think that's why these two sentences are sitting side by side like this, because Paul's like, it's the same thing. Right? It's our sin that brings upon us the judgment of God, right? And it's Christ who delivers us from our sin. That one right there, evidently young Timothy got it and didn't struggle with it. Just kept right on going. But anyway, he did tell Timothy to be careful with the law. Because you got some guys preaching about stuff they know nothing about. And the only way that we can possibly take that would be, Jesus you need, but you also need to be da-da-da-da-da, whatever. Circumcised without question, okay? Keeping the law without question. You got to do these things. In other words, the moment that you add something to grace alone, faith alone, Travis has told you in Sunday school, I know every time he went through Galatians, every Sunday, every week, is the moment he messed up the gospel. It's not the gospel anymore. we got to be really careful. And let me go back to it. I told you how the church is going to respond and get it over in the ditch. And the reason is because you and I do that in our minds already. Because we look at somebody who professes Christ and yet holds to this immoral way of believing in our days that you can be a Christian and follow in immorality and we look at them we shake our head they don't even know the Lord and what you're doing in there is you're you know how you get that car off the edge of the road your reaction is to jerk that wheel that's what you're doing you're jerking that wheel up out of there because you're saying well I'm not that way right I believe what's true, and then before you, you're a legalist and you're over there in the ditch. Got to be careful. This is exactly what the Jews did. Romans 2, we talked about this several weeks ago. If you bear the name Jew, and notice, you rely upon the law. You're keeping the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. You're confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness. You're confident that you are a corrector of the foolish. You're confident that you're a teacher of the immature. 
You're confident having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? In other words, Paul's telling the Jews, you justify yourself by keeping the law, but are you paying attention to what's going on in your heart? Now here it is for all you guys who are teaching the church, you got to be really careful from the attitude from which you teach. Because you understand where you are in regard to your sin. You understand that you are as much in need of Christ as anybody else in the room. And at the same time, if you walk in any of these things, you have to give up your position in the church. That's a line to walk. You know you're a sinner. You know you're in need of grace. But at the same time, if you ignore those things and keep walking in those things, you know you can't hold that position anymore of leadership within the church, right? This is a difficult line. But at the same time, you can't have this attitude right here. Teacher of the immature, thinking that you're above all of these things. And I think we have a good attitude around here. Most of, you, most of you guys, we always have that conversation. If it were not for the grace of God, right, we would not be in this room for sure, but we would continue to be living in sin. Always got to keep that in perspective. I am a trophy of God's grace. And at the same time, you hold the word of God before others, being careful to guard your own life. Uh, This is what Paul says about the Jewish people in summary in Romans 10. My heart's desire, my prayer to God is for their salvation, for I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. Again, you you would have been very impressed. They have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not submit or subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You really got to have that understanding. That's a very significant understanding for you to have. It's the, it's the difference between death and life. That you're trusting in the righteousness of Christ. We're far too easily influenced and persuaded and convinced by the zeal of people for God. You have to humbly realize that it is through grace alone and His righteousness and not your own. The Jews could never get that right as a nation. Many of them did. But the Christian church has to get that right. We have to get that right. It's not my own. But at the same time, you don't throw your hands up in the air and go, well, I'm an antinomian. I know what I did this weekend. I'm not going to tell the church people. If I don't change my salvation and you continue to walk in those things, what are you doing? Right? Difficult to balance. Moses writes that the man who practiced the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. He's talking about the gospel now. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, 
or who will descend into the abyss that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we preach, that we are preaching that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So there's a guy that comes up on my YouTube feed that I get offended at all the time. His tag is called Easy Salvation. And he always attacks Lordship Salvation, by which I'm particularly a believe is theologically sound. But he's always out to attack um, other doctrines of the faith because salvation is so easy. Now, I would hate to admit that I do agree with him that salvation is easy, but at the same time, I'm so frightened by easy believism, you lifting a hand, reciting a prayer, that it terrifies me to agree with him. But it literally is faith alone. When you think about, and I don't know if you've ever seen Alistair Begg, if I had the video, I'd show it to you right now, talking about the thief on the cross. It is amazing. As soon as he walks into heaven, Alistair gives some sort of discourse between one of the angels asking him, Hey, buddy, what are you doing here? Have you ever even heard about the doctor of salvation? He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, Do you even know about faith alone and grace alone? He said, I don't know what those words mean. And it goes on and on, and he finally says, well, then what in the world are you doing here? And the thief goes, the guy in the middle told me I could come. It's really good, and it's so true. I mean, it really is that easy. It really is. And all of our efforts is not to make it hard. All of our efforts is in order that you might not deceive yourself. Because there are more warnings about self-deception than I think there are of any other kind of warnings in the New Testament. I mean, they're loaded with self-deception. Because you see, the Israelites were deceived. They thought they were all in, all of them. But you get to, you get to Hebrews and you realize the majority of them, the overwhelming majority of them weren't in. They were deceived. And so we've got to keep that in mind too as New Testament believers in the church. It's going to be the same way. Remember what Jesus said? Broad is the road, wide is the gate, right? But narrow is the road. There's only going to be a few that find it, which means we're going to do exactly what they did in the Old Testament. We're going to deceive ourselves. But it really is as simple as the thief on the cross when he goes, I, I don't know. I've never been to church a day in my life. All I know is God Mill told me I'd come. So here I am, right? Got to be careful. Got to be very careful to keep it in the road. I found, just in way of helping you, I found if anyone professes Christ, I'm going to take you at your word. And I'm going to keep walking you. And I'm going to keep pushing you. And I'm going to keep leading you down a road that's walking you closer and closer to Christ in holiness. That's all I know to do. Until I die or you die, that's okay, let's go. If you're in, you say, let's go. And if you keep saying, I don't want to go, well, I'll wait until you circle back around and get back on the road. And I'll say, okay, let's go. And I'll ask you along the way, you sure? I explain the gospel. You sure? I'm sure. Okay, let's go. That's all I know to do. 
because we really, 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 really shouldn't be about the business going, well, Matt's out. I mean, look at him. Jeremy, man, no way, dude. That's not our job. Let's don't get wrapped up in that sort of thing. Matt says he's in, let's go. Jeremy says he's in, let's go. And we keep pushing and pressing. Holding out hope. But you know, I've preached my whole life hoping for someone to go, I was deceived. And give their heart and life to Christ. And that's yet to happen. So the only assumption that I can draw from, and I only know of one man, and he was a deacon, and he repented and put his faith in Christ, Jada, Travis. That's the only man I ever knew who did that. So evidently, self-deception is pretty strong. Because Jesus says, most are going to miss it, right? But it seems like nobody's missing it. So evidently, self-deception is very powerful. Because I've only seen one go, I was dead wrong. I wasn't in Christ. Okay. How did I get there from the law? Okay, Galatians, here we go. Here's some thoughts you got to keep in your bag. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died for nothing. So we understand that. That's very clear. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit when you were saved by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Obviously, you receive the Spirit by hearing with faith. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh, meaning keeping the law? It's not, really, it's not, um, again, Jesus plus keeping the law. It's all of grace. It's looking. There it is. Let's see if we can get back. There you go. Galatians 5, 4. You have been cut off from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen for grace. This always used to trip up a friend of mine because he didn't like the idea of having fallen from grace. Um, but the further you go down the road and persevere, the more that you understand you were always on the road. All right, let's see. I think I'm about done. I may be literally about done with this. slideshow here. I know what's wrong. I didn't open my office door, so the signal's getting bounced around. All right, so everybody in here, let me ask you the question. I won't call on you to answer it. There's my question. I want you to be able to answer that in your mind. I'm not going to just arbitrarily call on one of you, though. What is the primary purpose of the law? Jeremy, will you go back there and open that back door and prop it open? Maybe that'll help. What is the primary purpose of the law? Let's answer that. Reveal sin. There's your two passages we talked about in Romans. Romans 3.20, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 5.20, The law came in so the transgression would increase. 
but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, it was written down for you, and it revealed the attitudes it was supposed to. It was supposed to reveal the attitudes of your heart. You go, yeah, I'm not meeting this any way, shape, or form. Okay? But rather than doing that, we're so depraved, we picked it up and we went, I'm good. You're like, what? I won't say God was shocked by our level of depravity, but everybody else in all of creation certainly was shocked by the level of depravity at that point. You're like, what? I gave that to you to reveal your sin in your life, and you picked it up and you declare you're good in my sight. Are you kidding me? I bet all the angels were like, what in the world is wrong with these people? Right? But that's what they did. So that is the primary purpose of the law, to let you know you're a sinner in need of grace. Okay? And I'll get to another purpose if... Okay, other purposes of the law. And we're, I think we're almost done. So we can't set the law aside because we have passages like 2 Timothy 3.16. It's working better now, Jeremy. Thanks. 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All Scripture, which would include the law. So it's still good for us if we use it right. Okay? Uh, so, what time is it, Jeremy? Uh, it is 15 till. Oh, i got plenty of time. So, this is what we do, and I can't tell you if it's right or not, because the Bible doesn't do this. But the law is the law to God. He never divides it up in any aspect. It's simply the law. But what we've done in the study of it, we've divided it up basically into three or four categories. First of all, you have the ceremonial law. And I think, let me see if I've jotted down... I jotted down some things to help you, and if it doesn't pop up for me, I'll just go. So you've got the ceremonial law, you've got the civil law, and you've got the moral law. Ten Commandments are included in the moral law, if you want to know. Uh, the civil law was how they were supposed to conduct themselves in the context of a godless world. Uh, if your bull gored a man, well, you had requirements according to the law. Okay, you, 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 were, you were morally culpable for that, so there was a civil law that dealt with that issue. Ceremonial laws would include things like circumcision and the celebrations and the feasts and those sort of things. My pet is going absolutely berserk. So, but, now the Bible never does that, okay? The Bible never divides the law up, yet we divide the law up. But there are passages that seem like they're aspects of the law, number one, the ceremonial law, that we don't pay attention to anymore. Here's one of them. Therefore, no one is to act and this is the New Testament, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things that are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So this passage and another one seems as though all the ceremony has been set off to the side because certainly all the ceremony pointed to Christ. And it's such a serious issue. Paul says that if you get circumcised, for the sake of justifying yourself before God, you've fallen away from grace. So this is a big issue. You can't recognize celebrations and feasts and ceremonies and all those sort of things for the sake of justification or make yourself 
earn merit in the sight of God. Mm -mm, that does not work. Do not do that, okay? So it seems like the ceremony, and I think so, has been set aside. If you want to participate in those things, fine. You just got to realize you're just doing them for the sake of tradition. They, they don't do anything anymore. Jesus has fulfilled them all, okay? But there are other passages that come in that help us understand that there are parts of the law that we need to continue to recognize. Jesus told the scribes and the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrite. You tithe mint, dill, and cumin. You've neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the other. Now, I do realize he's talking to the scribes before he dies on Calvary, but at the same time, Jesus says, Hey, there's, there's things that carry greater significance in the law, justice and mercy, which points to the what? heart and not tithing mint and dill and cumin. And they would literally tithe herbs and not be merciful. And Jesus was like, woe to you, which is very serious. You're a hypocrite. You do these things of outward observance and you've, you've missed entirely the inward aspects of the law with justice and mercy, okay, and faithfulness say that to say there's aspects of the law that we need to pay attention to, okay? You can't just say it's all gone. Now here's the most significant. Mark 12 is an exchange between a Pharisee or a scribe and the Lord Jesus, okay? And you're familiar with this. One of the scribes came up and heard them arguing and recognized that he had answered them well, asked Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? You're very familiar with this. Jesus answered, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. In other words, Jesus takes the whole law and he says, Love God, love others. Okay? And he said, That pretty much sums up the whole thing. Or that does. But watch what the scribe says. The scribe said to Jesus, You're right. You have truly stated that He is one, there is no one else besides Him, and to love Him with all the heart, with all, the, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love one neighbor as Himself. And He adds this, is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And you're like, what in the world? How did you know that? In other words, the scribe had connected the dots. There's something more significant than external religious observance. And Jesus says to him, you have answered intelligently, you're not far from the kingdom of God. In other words, you're starting to understand the law. Now, this is one of the most helpful passages, I think, if we would meditate on them, about the usefulness of the law for us. But this, this particular scribe got it. He's like, oh, we're to observe the outward things. Oh, but there's things that carry more weight. And in this instance, it was love. Loving God and loving your neighbor. Okay? And Jesus said, dude, you're starting to get this. You're really starting to connect some dots. In fact, he was quoting passages like Micah 6, which, you know, Old Testament prophet, with what shall I come to the Lord and, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings and with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and in ten thousand rivers of oil? 
Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Shall, in other words, should I offer my child for my sin? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Inner things. In other words, there's an aspect of the law that reminds us of the inner attitude that we should have. And that's where we've got to be faithful in teaching that. Because if the inner man in you is not looking more like Christ, there is great cause for concern. And the law can help you do that. Examine your heart. I'll leave you with a quote, then I'll back up. Biblical law and the gospel of God's grace are not arch rivals, but they're twin mercies given by the same gracious Lord who did not wish His people in any age to be impoverished, but to enjoy life to the fullest. These things don't compete against each other. They're not opposites. They complement one, one another. So let me tell you about some of the hang-ups. So... What we say theologically is we say, oh, the moral law is still in effect. Sexual immorality is still in effect. Those sort of things. You've got to be careful. You've got to be super careful with statements like that because you can't say Jesus plus sexual immorality justifies me before God. You're wrong. It does not. You're not sexually moral. You're immoral people. Okay? So... When people say the moral law is still in effect, you better call time out and go, okay, what do you mean in effect? Because if you mean in effect for my justification, you are in effect wrong. Okay? But at the same time, I read passages Sunday from Paul and 1 John, especially John. John's brutal. If you continue walking in immoral ways, you are the son of the devil. Okay? It requires balance of thought. If sin defines your life, you are separated from Christ. If that's what moves you and motivates you, right? But at the same time, if you tell me that you're a good person morally, therefore God accepts you, you don't understand the gospel. You see the difficulty here? We got two, we got two tracks running long. They don't cross, but you've got to be careful. You gotta be super careful. So you, you have to have this attitude of humility and love and kindness, guarding yourself and your own personal sin, warning those that, well, if you love them, you'll warn them. Hey, you can't live like that. Hey, you can't do that. It's very concerning. You can't, don't do that, okay? We gotta find balance in these sort of things. I guess, okay, that's a super difficult issue, super difficult. But I would tell any of y'all, if you're going to commit your way to sexual immorality, I would tell any of y'all that if you roll up into me and say, I'm getting a divorce, and it's not for the sake of them being unfaithful, just for any other sake, I would warn you like you're about to lose your soul. That you better stop doing whatever you're doing and you repent, you turn back to your spouse, or you're going to forfeit your soul. And I'm thoroughly convinced I'd be faithful from the text. Thoroughly. I have no qualms about that whatsoever. Okay? 
A Christian will repent. An unbeliever will not repent. That's clear in Scripture. Okay? So that's a difficult issue. But here's, I'll leave you with one more difficult issue. What do you do with the Sabbath? I know what we do with the Sabbath, and we you know, thoroughly convinced that we're right, and we feel like we can prove we're right. That's a difficult issue. You see, the Ten Commandments are moral laws. And we all say, okay, you're going to tell me, commandment number one, that you worship idols and you love Jesus. I'm going to tell you you're crazy as a Bessie bug. Ain't going to work. Okay? You roll down those Ten Commandments, you've got to keep the Sabbath holy. Okay, if that's in the moral context, we walk through these things. Which Sabbath? I mean, you're talking about Saturday? Because that's what he's talking about. Oh, no, 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 we're not talking about Saturday. But nonetheless, you do realize you've got people who profess faith in Christ who observe Saturday. Oh, no, no, we do the Lord's Day. That's the new Sabbath. So we love Jesus and we recognize the new Sabbath. It's part of the moral law. What do we call those people? Seventh-day Adventists? Is that what we're calling them? Okay, so we're keeping the Sabbath. It's still part of the moral law, so we observe the Sabbath that's been changed to the Lord's Day. Okay. No, 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 listen. The law's been set aside. Every day's a lock. And we even have our favorite passage to run to to prove that point. Every day's a lock. Every day's the day of the Lord. We worship on the Lord's Day, but we're not keeping a law when we do it. We just recognize it as the Lord's Day. And so you've got those, us, we've got those who profess faith in Christ that recognize every day, but yet we gather to worship on the first day of the week because that's the day that Jesus was raised from the dead, but we're not doing it to keep a law. I mean, I'm telling you, if we can't worship Sunday because there's a tornado, I'm going to call worship on Monday or Saturday. We're going to worship. You see how that's difficult? It's super difficult. We've got everybody doing something different, right? And the reason that I lead this in a particular way is because I'm absolutely convinced I'm right from the text, right? That, well, we just read that one in Colossians. It probably will never go back there. Here you go. No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. You got that. So I would go, eh. What are you doing? But the people who observe the Sabbath would go to the Old Testament and say, hey, it's a part of the Ten Commandments, dude. You're going to start worshiping idols too? You know? You better keep that Sabbath. It's difficult. It's difficult. All right, so that's why I told my wife I was not ready tonight because I can't answer all the questions. Some things are just difficult.